Welcome to the True Voice Podcast with your host, LaShawn Smith. Hey, welcome to True Voice, where we learn more about today through stories from amazing people. This is season three. I'm your host, LaShawn Smith. Here on True Voice, we talk with people who have remarkable stories that entertain, teach, and offer a human perspective on how today's most pressing topics remain deeply connected to our past. I hope you enjoy today's episode with Robert Nellums. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Fantastic. Now, we're going to get into some of your professional background and what you're doing these days, but I like to go way back to the (laughs) beginning. So I want to hear, I know you're born and raised in Seattle. Tell me, you know, about your early childhood. Uh, Paint a picture, maybe give us one story that you recall that has really stuck with you through the years. Okay. I think there's a couple of things that I should tell you to, to give you a little grounding about me. One is that my father died uh, 13 days after my first birthday. My sister was two months and 12 days old. And so my mother, when he died, he was in the army. He was actually stationed in Italy. And so when he died, my mother bundled up the kids and took us over to her mother's house, my grandmother's house. And at my grandmother's house was my grandmother, my grandfather, two uncles, two aunts, Uh, I should say two great uncles, two aunts, an uncle, a cousin, and then my mother and my sister and me, along with my great-grandmother. So we were a huge family in this house. And what I loved about that that house, uh, because that house was part of who and what I am for years and years and years to come after that, is that that was clearly my grandmother's house. She Mm. ran the show. She ran the things. And she made sure that we took care of everybody in our family. She made sure we took care of people in other people's family. So you never knew who you might be eating dinner with. I grew up at the kids' table. And let me tell you, you know, the adults' table, the kids' table. And I'll just tell you one quick story about how I got out of the kids' table. I was 12 years old. Mm -hmm. I went down to the engineering department. They had what they called a neighborhood youth corps program, a NYC program. And it was you supposed you you needed to be 14 years old. If you were 14, you could get a job making a dollar 60 an hour. You remember that? This is 1968. Okay. Okay. I went down. I told them I was 14. And there's no computers. There's nowhere to check. They don't look for any ID. There's nothing. They signed me up, gave me a job, handed me a hard hat, put me to work. I went home on the bus. I was just beaming because I knew that my mother would appreciate it, but my grandmother would love this. Mm-hmm. I walked into the house, into Granny's house, carrying my hard hat. And I said, I got a job. <laughs> and she, <laughs> she, she was over the moon and... and at dinner time uh, that night, she moved me from the kids' table to the adult table and moved my cousin Herbert from the adult table to the kids' table because he didn't have a job. So, <laughs> so, so I they said Robert's ready. That's right. They made sure, uh, Granny made sure that, that I got my dues. And um, I just enjoyed uh, that time because even after we moved out of Granny's house, she lived in between on 27th Avenue East in between Denny and John. So we moved and we moved and we moved and we moved and we moved until we got a house and then uh, apartment. And then my mom said, yeah, OK, we're going to stay here. That happened to be on 26th and John. We were a, ha- a block and a half away. 
Wow. So, so every day I come home, I'm hanging out at Granny's until my mother gets home from work and then I go home. And so it's a tight family, tight neighborhood, tight community that I grew up in here. And, and it's, it's very, very, very sad that we don't have as much of that now as we used to. Yep. Uh, quickly for, you know, we have people listening from all over. For folks who don't know the Seattle area, explain the neighborhood. What's the name of the neighborhood that your grandmother's house sat in? And, uh, you know, how has that maybe changed over the years? Well, that was the Central District, the CD. Mm-hmm. It was the only place at the time that African-Americans could live. Hmm. So we were redlined out of every other neighborhood in the, in Seattle. So all of the African-Americans in Seattle lived somewhere in the CD at one time. And so it was uh, uh, you had uh, everybody from uh, doctors to players to from everything in, in between. But it was a, a serious community. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, what we looked at and, and what we celebrated. The funny thing, I mentioned 1968 before, and, I, and that was actually the year that my mother remarried. Mm-hmm. And she married my stepfather. And we moved from that house on 26th and John, which is, like I said, in the CD. We moved to a house on Beacon Hill and uh, because things started to open up a little bit. And we moved into a house on 25th Avenue East, right off of Chiesty Boulevard, on the east side of Beacon Hill, northeast side of Beacon Hill. And it was a a community that was basically Asian and black uh, in newer homes. And so it was was a a pretty cool bringing in all all of that. But it led me to my time at uh, Asa Mercer. It was was a junior high school at the time, middle school is what you call it. And then I ended up at Franklin High School even though all of my parents went to uh, Garfield High School. Okay, a little rivalry there. Yeah. We're going to get into some of your professional work at the Seattle Center. Um, you know, give me the the quick stops along the way from, you know, Franklin to, you know, becoming the director of the Seattle Center. Oh, okay. Well, Franklin, I went to University of Washington. I left the University of Washington. I went to Bellevue College, graduated from Bellevue College, went to Central Washington University, got a degree in accounting, then got a job at the city of Seattle as an entry-level accountant, worked my way up from an entry-level accountant to budget and finance manager, then got a a job at um, uh, Seattle Center as a director of patron services, a year and a half after that, I was the deputy director of Seattle Center. A few years after that, uh, my boss left and, and I was the interim director. And it, then they went for a national search to find a new director and ended up with me. And wow. I've, been, I've been the director of Seattle Center since 2006. Fantastic. Now, I, uh, you know, when I talk to people, sometimes there is a very clear and intentional, you know, kind of set of steps on people's career. And then other times folks say like, man, I had no idea. It just, you know, it kind of evolved, took the right opportunity and, and uh, you know, kind of saw it where it went. As you outline those steps, how much of that was just kind of clearly articulated in your head versus, you know, you kind of reacted and, and found the best intersection for your skill set and, you know, the opportunities in front of you? From the time that I went to Central Washington University on I knew what I wanted to do, and I, I was 
prepared. I was preparing myself for my future. Mm. The, the time before that, when I went to the UW, when I went to Bellevue, I played basketball. I, I chased girls. I had a lot of fun. I didn't really do a lot of stuff in the right way because I was the eldest uh, person in my ring. We In our family, we, we call them ring. So in my generation, my ring, I'm the eldest. Mm. And it was on me to be the pioneer that would lead the rest of the ring into college because nobody had ever gone to college. And so we're going to lead them into college and we're going to start creating opportunities for people in our family. And when I went to the University of Washington, my very first class I went into, there's like 700 and some people there and they, they were virtually all white. And I'm looking around going, I don't, this is not for me. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a situation where I thought I could do it and I, and I probably could have, but the fact that, that I had all this pressure on me to succeed and I was in a, a, a very strange environment where I didn't know uh, people and things didn't, uh, weren't working out for me. The savior for me is when I joined a fraternity. I, I'm a Kappa Alpha Psi and I joined a fraternity and that helped me connect myself with other people who look like me in school. But U, uh, UW wasn't the school for me. It was way too many people and, and not enough folks who really cared about you. Mm. Now, I had a, a people who looked like me who cared about me, but they weren't professors. They weren't uh, TAs. They weren't uh, other students and so forth. So leaving there and going to uh, Bellevue College was a, a great thing for me because, one, I could play basketball. And that helped me get myself back into the flow and get back into what I wanted to do. And, you know, I wasn't bad. You know, I was an OK uh, ball player. I'm in the Hall of Fame and all of that stuff. But it, it enabled me to, to, you know, kind of find myself. And once I found myself, I said, OK, now I know what I want to do, what I want to do. I want to go into accounting because that's what my teacher back in high school had told me that, you know, accountants were uh, like in the top three of, of earning potential and accountants, either you knew either your, your books were right your ledgers were right or they were wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't about being black or white. It was about whether or not your numbers were right or wrong. And so I said, let me try that. So I went to uh, Central Washington University because they had the best accounting uh, program. And and I did, it did well there uh, in the beginning until, and I got through, I graduated and I graduated decent grades and all that stuff. But it was very interesting to go to a place where you are the only one that looks like you in the entire business school. Mm. Wow. A couple of things you said, I don't want to bring it back to where we just finished, but I want to go back to you talking about these rings. As you talk about, as your family uses that language, where, where did you get that from? And, and how do you communicate across rings? How do you make sure that as you're sharing information that the younger folks, uh, you know, get the, the lessons you've learned? Yeah. Well, you know, I give everything to my grandmother. So if we did it just because she she told us to or, or what have you. But, you know, I think my mom and, and her ring uh, actually started calling ourselves rings. And I don't know where that came from or why or, or what have you. But when my grandmother was alive, we were a very close knit family. I mean, every about two or three times a, a week, everybody would be over at Granny's having dinner. And on Sundays, you came, period. Mm. 
after whatever you just came by. Even if mm-hmm. you, you know, you might not eat eat dinner there, but you'll take a little bit of something. You'll say hello to everybody, and then you go on your bed. That was our family, and so it it was it was just a natural thing that happened. You know, and when um, when my m- mother remarried and my uh, stepfather, you know, he wasn't into all that stuff. So, you know, my sister, my mother and me, we would go over to Granny's and he'd stay at home. And, and that was fine because that's the way it always had been. You know, it, it, there was nothing new there. And then at Granny's house, I mean, we we talked, we, you know, listened to music, we hung out, we did, uh, everybody shared things and and everybody recognized that the family itself was the the core was the thing that was holding all this together and 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 I got to be honest with you when my grandmother passed you know my great grandmother passed and my grandmother passed when my gra- grandmother passed uh, there was a huge void in our family there was a huge void in our family you know without that house and that energy it 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 really uh, started to uh, uh, deteriorate a little bit and uh, for a while, things started to splinter out and started to go away. And then we had to bring it back. And we bring it back. I mean, we, we do things now that are really cool. I mean, our family gets together and everything. But now when we get together, you got to send out invitations. You got to make sure everybody knows. You got to, you know, does this date work for you? Granny never put an invitation to anybody in <laughs> she, her life. She no. didn't have you on the Facebook group trying to no, get you connected. It's no, just come to the house. No, no. And if you didn't come a week, she'd call you and say, what's wrong? You know, so right. you, you just came, you know, and and that was what I, I truly missed. And it became kind of interesting that in our family, my aunt Doris, she was the oldest, she would have her thing. So she did Christmas. So we would do Christmas brunch at her house and everybody would come over and do that, you know. And, and then uh, my aunt Linda, the youngest, she did a thing for her family. And she didn't do it for the entire family, but she did it for her family. And they would do a kind of a mini version of what Granny's house used to look like. So we had all these little factions going around. I mean, my uncle Harold, my Aunt Jean and then my mother, we all had these things. My mother would do Thanksgiving or something at her house. And, you know, and then we just said, okay, this is not, this is kind of crazy. So we started to do what we would call uh, an annual reunion. We call it a reunion. And so over a weekend in August, we would have a fresh fish fry on Friday. We'd go out on Saturday, uh, usually somewhere, go out on Saturday uh, day and then go out at night. And then we'd have a picnic on Sunday Hmm. and we would invite the entire family and and friends and everybody over. And when you do that, you bring all this all this food and everything and you sit around. You just have a great time. The picnic was always the most fun because we would be hanging out. We, you know, play ball, play with the kids, you know, sit around, listen to some music jam and and just have a a time just being part of a family where you see all sorts of elements. We got multiple generations and and just, you know, you got the littlest, the babies, and then you got the folks who are, you know, in their 80s. And then that's what we do. That's fantastic. Now, I know you have, uh, you and your wife have two children. How do they, um, how they kind of embrace this and kind of, you know, picked up their, their part in, uh, you know, carrying on for the next rings? Yeah, well, well, I, my children are twenty years apart, so you have to, you have to. My son Andre is the oldest; mm-hmm. he's totally into the family. 
because when he was coming up, because he's not my wife, he was from another uh, young lady that goes back to high school and all that. But my mother helped raise him. His mom raised him, then my mother raised him, then I raised him. And so he's been part of our family for a long time and he fits he fits right in. My daughter, Elizabeth, she loves to hang out and she hangs out with, with her ring. But the rest of the family is kind of overwhelming for her <laughs> and, and, and for her mother, for that matter. They're just right. my wife. You know, we've been married 33 years. And she tells me, I, I still need a program with all these people. And, I, they, <laughs> you know, I, you know, because she came, her family was her, her mother and her stepfather. She had two stepbrothers and sisters back in Des Moines, Iowa. And her family is, is and that's it, basically. And so she, her and her mother and father were together. Then they, they split up, never spoke another word to each other. Hmm. And both married uh, Europeans. And Jane came to Seattle uh, when she was four and went to Roosevelt High School. And, you know, her father and uh, got remarried and stayed in Des Moines. So when it comes to my family, I'm used to having my whole family in town with me. I'm right. used to everybody being around. I'm used to all this stuff. Well, with Jane's family, we, we got to go visit. Right, <laughs> right, right. Gotta go. You gotta go hang out for a while and all that. It's cool. It's just a lot different. I I love my family. Yeah, no. So uh, so many different dynamics there. I want to fast forward. You know, back to your in school. There's a couple things that you said there that I want to make sure we touched on before we we moved on. You said you picked this career that you know, it, you made it sound like it was objective, right? It was going to be fair, right? And uh, oh, that, no, that's it, pretty. It, it wasn't going to be fair. It was okay. going to. Be- Fairer. Okay, more fair. <laughs> well, what gave you the? No, go I ahead. knew it wasn't going to be fair, but it was going to be fairer. No, I, I hear that. Um, uh-huh. Acknowledge. Uh huh. What, what gave you the insight to to even have that clarity? Well, when I was in high school, I had this teacher. Her name was uh, Malbert Haynes. Uh, Mrs. Haynes was a person who did a lot uh, for me and, and for a couple of my friends. She introduced accounting to us. While we were in school, she had a business proficiency program. You had to take a bunch of business classes to get this thing. And and we went through and got that. But she brought in three African-American accountants and introduced them to us. And, you know, you bring in people all the time and say, this person does this job. And one, I didn't know what an accountant was. And but there were three of them that looked like me. And I said, well, if they can do that, I can do that. Right. And if and if they can be successful, I can be successful. So I was I was actually seeing something that was successful in my mind. And I remember she had this this little chart on her wall that showed that, you know, earnings uh, potential, doctors, lawyers, accountants. And I said, well, you know, that's number of years in school. Doctors are eight years, uh, lawyers, six years, accountants, four. I can do that. I don't mm-hmm. want to be in school for any more than that, but I can do that. <laughs> and right. so I said, okay, this is something I can do. And the amazing thing for me is I became an accountant. I became a good accountant. I worked my way up in the city of Seattle and I, I worked in 
kept getting promoted, kept getting promoted, kept getting promoted. And then I got to a place when I was uh, running our budget and finance unit and I, and I was offered another job to be a, a division head or something. And I said, you know, I don't want to be an accountant. Mm. You know, if I'm true to who I am and how I was raised and what I believe in and what I can do, I want to be working with people and, and helping them become something like uh, we did at Granny's House, like my mother does every day, mm-hmm. like my great grandmother did every day. And I said, well, you know, I'm not going to go. No, I'm not interested in these other jobs. I'm, I think I might have to leave here and go somewhere else because I was working for an internal service agency called uh, uh, DAS, the Department of Administrative Services for the city of Seattle. And I I said, I I can't do this anymore. So almost immediately when I made that determination, I get a phone call from a lady who's running Seattle Center, Virginia Mm. Anderson. She had heard about me from other people said, well, this guy's pretty good and and you should talk to him if you have an opening. She had an opening. She called me and said, would you be interested in applying for such and such and such and such? And I said, Maybe I have to uh, look into it and all that. And so she said, well, would you be interested in coming out and talk to me? I said, of course, I'll come out and talk to you. And so I went out and talked to her and I had done a little research and so forth about who she was and what was going on there. I walked in, sat down, looked at her and I said, before we get started with this, I got to say something. If this is some sort of affirmative action hiring or something like that, I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want to have anything to do with this. Because I have a job and I don't need to go into something else unless it's really something I want to do. Now, she didn't lose her cool or anything like that. But she told me later, she said, I could not have insulted her more by that. And I told her, well, I don't know you. I got to speak my truth to you first. Right. And so, and so she goes through that and she says, well, you're an arrogant SOB, aren't you? And I said, no, I'm not. I'm actually not an arrogant SOB, but I have to speak my truth. And she said, well, you didn't smile. You didn't say anything nice. You didn't do it. And, and I said, yeah, but I got the job. Um, <laughs> and so and from that point forward, after I got the job, we were like, uh in fact, that, you know, she was grooming and grooming and grooming. She wanted me to, to be her successor. And after about 18 months, she made me her deputy. And, and you know, we're just doing all these things because she believed in me. Right. And I, I had to respect that. I, I tell her all the time, you're a crazy woman. Um, <laughs> but, but I love you to death. And your belief uh, meant a great deal to me. No, it's great to have those uh, professional partnerships uh, through the journey. Before we get into some of the work you actually have have done, you know, at the center, I mean, a lot of people don't even know what this means, right? We're saying the word Seattle Center, yeah. so let's go yeah. back, 1962 World's Fair. Like, give me the the history lesson. Like, like, why does this place exist in the first place? Well, you know, years ago they used to do World's Fairs and all over the world and everything. And and way back in the 50s, there was a bunch of movers and shakers in Seattle that were trying to, to put Seattle on the map. And so they, they were trying to figure out, okay, how do we get the rest of the world to notice us? You know, now is, everybody knows where, where Seattle is, but back, in then, back then, no one knew where Seattle was. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll give you an example. There was a group of them that went to make a pitch to, uh, they went to Europe, to France, to pitch for the World's Fair. And they were saying that they were from Washington. 
And everybody that they were talking to assumed that that meant that they were from Washington, D.C. So when they did their presentation, they had to put a map of the United States up and said, this Washington, not this one, is who okay. we are. Is who we are. Right. Um, and so I went to the World's Fair when I was five years old. So the World's Fair was supposed to be about the Seattle, Anchorage, or the Yukon, Alaskan uh, fair that brought us to University of Washington. It was going to be about uh, the next step in, in this uh, evolution. But uh, right before the World's Fair happened and they, were, they got all their plans set, uh, Sputnik happened. Mm. Uh, Sputnik came and, and it, it told the world that the Russians were ahead of us in science. And so the World's Fair for Seattle became all about the future of what we knew, what we could be, and where we were going. And so it became uh, basically a technology fair. They didn't use the word, word technology back then, but that's what it became. It was all about technology. And, and we had the Pacific Science Center. We had Washington State had its own own uh, exhibit, which became the Key Arena, which became the Coliseum, became Key Arena, which will now become Climate Pledge Arena. It was uh, on a very eclectic uh, but impressive uh, journey through science and technology. But it was also a way of inviting everyone into Seattle because, you know, the all these different uh, countries that uh, sent their their folks there and they had their little stands or, or their booths or their buildings or whatever. They were from all over the world. And that says, I mean, if you go back to Seattle back then, Seattle was very, very, very white at that time. And so bringing all these other folks in started to, to open up people's eyes that there were people all over the world and then mm-hmm. they might uh, enjoy a, a little bit of this space too. And so the World's Fair brought Seattle forward for a lot of people. Then, you know, Boeing is, is coming up and then, then you, you have a lot of other things that start to happen after the World's Fair. Uh, you know, Microsoft happens in the 70s and the 80s. And, you know, you start to build things that people all over the world start to know. I mean, now when you say, you know, Seattle is probably a, a top 50 city of the world, you know, probably easily. Back in the uh, when they were talking about building a World's Fair here or doing a World's Fair here, almost nobody knew where the hell it was. Yeah. I mean, that's fantastic to kind of see how that compounds. Right. And, you know, very likely some of the people who, you know, started and or, you know, built, managed those companies you mentioned, they attended that fair. They had, you know, like the seeds were planted. Right. I don't know how much you can remember as a five year old, but, you know, (laughs) were there was there anything that, you know, a visual or something that stood out to you as you think back, like, you know, just seeing a place that a space rather that just kind of brought all these different people that you didn't maybe see on a normal everyday occurrence? Well, there, there's two things. One, going up in the Space Needle and, and being able to see and, and all of that was for a five-year-old is going to be incredible. The other thing that's incredible for a five-year-old is seeing a lot of people that weren't black and weren't white mm. and seeing that there were a lot of other people that were just doing things and, and it wasn't that you didn't really know that, but you didn't see those people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. It, in, in the CD, there was a couple of 
Filipino families. There was a couple of Asian families and everybody else was black. I mean, mm. that's, that's the way it was. And so seeing other people, other types of people were very, it was very exciting. It was, it was very illuminating and it started to broaden your view of the world. Now for a five-year-old, I'm not, my world view is not very broad, <laughs> uh, but I, I can tell you that there were some impressions that were made on me that said, oh, there are some other folks here and mm-hmm. that's cool too, you know? No, that's, that's super cool. But let's fast forward, you know, you're in this role. I mean, sometimes people hear these titles and things and, and don't really know what that means. First off, you know, you're working in the city What's the, you know, so people can understand the city's connection to the Seattle Center. And when someone says like, hey, you know, Robert's the director, you know, like break that down and, and help people <laughs> understand, like, what do you really do? Yeah. OK. Well, the city of Seattle owns Seattle Center and it owns all the land there except for three pieces of property. The specific science center owns its property. The Space Needle owns its footprint. And the school district owns the Memorial Stadium and parking lot out the outside. So about 13, 14 uh, acres out of the 30 something acres are owned by other people. Everybody, the rest of the Seattle Center is either run by uh, the city of Seattle by Seattle Center or uh, we're the, the landlord for everyone else at Seattle Center. And so, you know, after the World's Fair, there's been a lot of work that has happened to try to create a, a civic um, place, a civic place. You know, the, the, the folks who built the World's Fair, they had that in their minds. They said that we want to have this, this World's Fair for six months, but after the six months, we want to have something that's going to be a civic center for our community that's going to last for years after that. And, and so mm-hmm. that, that's what Seattle Center is. And so with me, on the mayor's cabinet. So my boss is the mayor. I am uh, appointed by the mayor and confirmed by the city council every four years. Every four years, I go through that that process. And as part of the mayor's cabinet, all of the, the issues of the city of Seattle are discussed and all of that stuff is happening. And, and either person listening to that or a person contributing to what's going on there. For Seattle Center, we got over 30 resident organizations on our campus. You know, we got everything from Pacific Northwest Ballet and Seattle Opera, Seattle Repertory Theater, Seattle Children's Theater, uh, KEXP, uh, Seattle International Film Festival, uh, Vera. We, we, got a, we just got a ton of things that happen there. There are seven theaters there. There are open space there. Uh, you know, when, when the World's Fair was there, it was all blacktop. So... What you see now is where buildings have been uh, torn down, uh, grass has been planted, and space has been opened up. Hmm. Um, the thing that I say about the World's Fair is that uh, Seattle built a 74-acre site uh, to hold the world. But after the World's Fair, to hold our community, we had to tear all the walls down or tear a lot of the walls down and open it up so that everyone could come in. And so and that's what's what has happened over over time is is uh, we keep trying to uh, either tear walls down, tear buildings down, open up spaces or create new ones. And so at Seattle Center, there's uh, about 
12 million people who come to the center each year or when we're not in COVID, let's say, sure. <laughs> when right. we're, you know, ready, ready to do things. And we probably do somewhere in the neighborhood of between five and 8,000 events a year when you add in everything that's happening all over the place. And we've been the home of, because um, we've, we've had a, uh, an arena and so forth, we've been, we've been home to a lot of concerts and all that stuff. We've been home to the Sonics when they were here, the storm that, that's still here. And now we're getting ready to be home to the, the Kraken for the NHL team. So all that happens with the stadium that's there from there. Uh, we have high school sports. We have a, a lot of folks doing uh, local sports and all that. That kind of activity happens. That's an outdoor stadium. We have our armory is where we have uh, food and, and a lot of uh, meeting rooms and all that stuff. So you can go inside. You can go outside. You can hang and do all sorts of stuff. We do major festivals. We do a, a folk life festival, a pride festival, food festival, and a music festival each summer and bring everybody out. And, and, you know, with our grounds, we can hold uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of forty to 50,000 people. And so when the festivals are, are, are going hot and heavy, the uh, Seattle Center is the place to be. And when they're not, Seattle Center is still the place to be. Yeah, no, that that's fantastic. And you kind of broke it down, uh, I think, in a helpful way. I mean, you know, when you have these spaces, especially like this, that are, are really at the intersection of both arts and culture, and, you know, technology, you really can kind of anchor the city and kind of give it some clarity and focus. So, so that's fantastic. I want to hit some, some dates. You can, you can tell me, Hey, I don't, you know, nothing attached to that. Or you can say like, Oh, I remember that moment. Uh 96 Sonics. What comes to mind? (sighs) A lot of pain, a lot of, (laughs) well, wait, wait, well, well, first a lot of joy because the Sonics, went to the finals uh, with uh, the Chicago Bulls. And they had to get by the Utah Jazz to do that. And so they're beating uh, Stockton and Malone, Peyton and Kemp did their job. They got them. And we went to face the, the Bulls. I will say this, that Nate McMillan getting hurt before that series uh, hurt us. If we had Nate McMillan, I'm not going to say we would have won that series, but I at least would have gone seven. We lost the first three games to Chicago, and then we won two and then lost the, the fourth one. And everybody thought, okay, well, we'll, we'll come back, and we never did. And uh, two years later, there's a lockout. There's all sorts of other things that are happening. But, you know, until we lost to the Bulls, that was a magical season, mm-hmm. a magical season. Yeah, I'm sure the energy around the, the, the space was, uh, felt magical as well. Mm-hmm. What I mean, for someone like yourself, you know, you played ball in school and then to be in those types of, of situations, uh, I mean, you know, it wasn't for you just like, oh, just some random thing. I mean, you are I mean, you know, you said yourself, you're a, you're a hoops fan. So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm all over it. Uh, you that, know. That's a pretty great place to uh, to be working when uh, you're connected in that that manner. To be fair, to be fair, I came in July 30th. 1996. So right after they lost, I started working. It. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got this. I mean, okay, that that raises a really interesting point, though. We talked about the family, your roots in Seattle. Uh, you could have gone other places, and you end up having you know this uh, you know deeply impactful career in the city. 
what made you stay here? Like when you finished school, was it going back to the family and just kind of how it was anchored or, or like, you know, why not move to California or New York or go some other place? Love New York. I uh, love San Francisco, LA, <laughs> but I'm a Seattle kid. And, and I, my family means too much to me to leave it. And so I never considered really seriously consider I had opportunities to take jobs in other cities and, and to leave. But I, I never uh, truly considered that because this it's not just that it's home to me, but everybody that I love is here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it doesn't make sense for me to go chase a professional dream when I got personal dreams right here that are in place and things that I need to look at. And and the, the last thing, you know, I mentioned that, you know, my mother uh, had a stepfather and she got married. She got divorced, too. And so being close by and being very um, uh, protective of my mother is something else that that's important for me. Now, she don't need a lot of protection, just to be clear. <laughs> I just want to be clear about it. But I felt like that's between my son and me, we do a lot of that anyway. Right, right. No, that's good to hear. Let's talk music. 2004, mm-hmm. Prince. <laughs> well, I've seen Prince three times. He was one of my, I almost say my faves, but he was one of them, one of my faves. Seeing Prince is kind of earth shattering uh, because he's gone now. And, you know, you, when you're in the midst of all this stuff, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll see him next time. We're going to do that. And then when somebody's gone, it's like, oh, well, you got to see him those times. And that's, that's a great thing. Now, 2004, I don't recall what, you know, what I was doing then with him. But I will just say that every time that Prince came to Seattle, I was in the audience Mm. for one of those shows. Right, right. Just because there are certain folks that you just got to see. It's like every time Stevie came, Mm -hmm. I was in the audience. You know, there's this, you know, every time Miles came, I was in the audience. You know, there's just certain people that are so good that you just have to be there. I don't remember a lot about 2004 because. I think the last time that I saw him was probably what I, I remember most about. We were at Seattle Center and, and Prince was coming to the Coliseum or the Key Arena at the time. And we got this notice from his, his promoter that said, well, Prince's not going on unless, the, unless it's all sold out. And we said, what? Well, you got 90 some percent sold. I mean, what do you want? He said he wants it all sold out. I said, well, uh, and so, so the, I said, well, what you want to do? He said, well, uh, we want to sell some tickets for $10 and because we want it to be sold out. I said, well, we can do that. Right. In fact, let, let me get on the phone right now. And I, let me tell some of my boys that this is getting ready to happen and they need to come down and get some tickets. So it was uh, it was a really a very cool thing. One of my one of my uh, fraternity brothers, um, Cardell, he um, in fact, he went every night <laughs> to see <laughs> Prince because uh, he, he's the music file or, uh, from, of all of us. Um, I love music, but he loves music. So, right. uh, but, but it was it was it was really cool. And, you know, Prince is one of those folks you can point to and say, yeah, I, I saw him. I saw him there. I do that with Prince. I do that with Stevie. 
I do that with Miles. I, I do that with people who are very influential. And I, I've seen a lot of different groups. I mean, as, as a, you know, everyone says, well, you're the director. You get to go to all. I don't get to go to everything. If I go to something, I got to buy a ticket just like you. <laughs> right. You know, unless I have some official function to do, I got to buy a ticket just like everybody else. So when I'm going to something, I'm spending my money to do that. I just want to mm-hmm. make sure everybody understands that. Right, right. Before we we start wrapping up and uh, talking about what's next, you know, any other big moments uh, around that specific space that kind of stand out for you? Well, uh, there's a few moments that stand out. On a very somber side, 9-11 stands out for me because uh, for 9-11, uh, this community didn't really have something to do or somewhere to go that they that they could all get together and and so we put the something together at Seattle Center and it became uh, we, we were going to do this little uh, thing in honor of everyone that, that passed away at, in 9/11 and we we're going to do it for a day we ended up doing creating a flower vigil in our fountain um, that lasted six days Hmm. And the only reason uh, we had to pull the plug on it was because the flowers started to break down and go into the filtration system and they were starting to mess that up. So after the sixth day, we said, look, if you guys want to come down, there's this guy who's going to give everybody tulips. He wants you to take some of the the earth here and take a, a tulip bulb and plant them throughout the city and throughout the region. And just whenever they bloom each year, just remember this. And I got to be honest with you, we had so many things that happened during the uh, uh, vigil. We set it up so there were no spoken words. It was just music playing. Hmm. We set it up so that there you could bring a flowers or flowers down and, and sprinkle them out and do things. And the fountain started to fill up with flowers. And that's a very large fountain. If, if you don't know Seattle Center, go online, look up the International Fountain and think about that being full of flowers. We had elected officials coming down. We had military folks coming down. We had police and fire. We had we had so many different types of, of entities. But the thing that got me, there was this group of Indian, and I, I mean um, from India, folks who came in and they wanted to participate. And, and so the crowd that there, you know, there's a crowd there every day. And this crowd just parted and let them walk in. They walked in, they uh, had some music going, they made a a few statements, Um, the crowd embraced them, and then they went on uh, out of the the fountain. I will always remember that because these weren't uh, folks that that looked like Americans per se, but they were Americans per se. And they were speaking to us in a way that said, we are Americans, too. We hurt, too. And we are here with you, too. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the most powerful things that I have experienced. And I'll just say one more thing about that. There was no time that it stopped, you know, at at one, two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, people were sitting around the fountain burning candles. You know, people were just there. And uh, that's when we knew uh, that all the work that had been done to create a, a civic place had actually worked because, right. the, because without any real announcements or anything like that, people just gathered there. 
they came there and they celebrated with uh, celebrating is the wrong word and they mourned with each other. That was as moving a time at Seattle Center as I had, except in 2008, we got a call on Monday morning from the Barack Obama campaign asking us if they could come and do a, a, an event that Friday. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have anything booked, so we said, sure. In a couple of days, we got everything set up. And there's a, I'll just give you two quick stories. One, because the Secret Service is now running my arena, I don't have access to it. <laughs> and so when my wife and mother-in-law and daughter shows up and they want me to get them in, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. And all I can ever remember is, is my mother-in-law telling my wife, well, what good is he then? <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's the way it goes. Second thing, this one hurts even more than that one. Because of who I am and how I've been raised, I didn't think he had a chance to win the presidency. So I was uh, meeting him and having a nice little chat. And, and uh, one of my colleagues said, you, you want me to take a picture? And I said, no. Nah it's not going to mean anything. Uh, So so I have to live that one down because I did that and and I kick myself every time, but I just did not think this country was ready for that. And afterwards it, it showed you how truthful that could be, but it was such a great time hearing him speak and, and hearing and seeing. And, and what people don't realize is when he came to Seattle, he didn't have everybody on board at that time. But the governor, Gregoire, and the mayor, uh, Nichols, both supported him. And that meant that they weren't supporting Hillary. And that was a huge thing here and in other places. So it was pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it's just some history lessons, right? We go back from the World's Fair to, you know, all of these, you know, cultural, political, you know, science events. I mean, this is what shapes, you know, our communities, our cities, our countries, uh, the world. And uh, I mean, when I when I kind of look at the story and hear some of the things that you've shared, you're you're really kind of an amplifier of community, right? Well, There's, go ahead. That's what I was raised to be, you know. Yeah, and, and that's I'm, why I was bringing it back to yeah, you know yeah. Granny's house. It's like oh, that's right. That's, you that's, took <laughs> you took that energy and you figured out how to go amplify that and spread that, you know, throughout a whole city, and that's well, amazing. When I became director of and all that, I, mean, I always ask myself. Is Granny and Mama Zia, would they be proud of me? Because mm-hmm. my mother tells me, she proud of me she's proud of me all the time. But I always ask myself, is Granny, is Granny okay? Is, is, is my great-grandmother, that's, that's Mama Zia, is, is she okay? And, you know, because that, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to live the life that they taught me how to live. Mm. Fantastic. As we're wrapping up, any advice you would give to folks as they're thinking about you know, their role in community They're you know, um, you know, is it just, you know, show up and, and treat people better? Is there things we can do? I mean, you know, you you sit at an intersection where you have visibility that others may not. You know, what would you what would you leave our listeners with as they think about, you know, all the, the division that we can find ourselves in today? Uh, how can we be better connected? Well, that's a that's a mouthful right there. Let me say a couple of things. One. I think it's very important for people to be who they are and to live your truth. 
and to live that in a way that you can get up every day, look in the mirror and say, am I doing okay? Am I doing right? And, and say yes and go on. I think that, that you have, it's great if you can live in, in a way that allows you to get into a norm or a, that's not what I want to say. I'm trying to think of what I want to say and I'm losing it. But I think that, that when people know what it is they want to contribute to this world or, or if they have an idea about what could make this world better, having that kind of vision, getting around other people who share that vision and uh, being with other people who, if, if, who may be uh, advocates or associated with that, that's how you create a, a beautiful life for yourself. And it really doesn't matter what you're doing at that point or, or who you're doing it with, because if, you, if you're actually doing those things, you're actually moving us forward. You're moving us forward as people. And I always want to move people forward. I want to move people closer to who they want to be and where they want to be. And sometimes that's with people who look like them. And sometimes that's with people who don't. And it doesn't, you know, I, I don't make that call. I just create the venues and the space that allows people to come in and occupy. And if they occupy it in the right ways, then everyone else is going to come in and be part of that. And that's what, what makes the life worth living. This is fantastic conversation, uh, Robert. Thanks again for joining us and, and sharing your story. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Tell our listeners where they can find either you or any of the organizations that you represent online. Uh, well, I'm at uh, always go to seattlecenter.com to see what's happening at Seattle Center. But if you want to talk to me directly, I'm at robert.nellums at seattle.gov. Perfect. Love it. Well, thanks to everyone else who's listening in today with our uh, conversation with Robert Nellums. Uh, this was excellent. We hope you each have enjoyed your time. Please leave a great review wherever you listen to our show. I'm LaShawn. Thanks again. And remember, dream big, stay curious and always share your true voice. See you next time. This is True Voice.